One of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called The Edge, uh, starring Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Uh, in the movie, Hopkins or Baldwin are caught in a, sm- uh, in a small plane crash in the Alaskan wilderness. They're flying above in like some prop plane, and they run into like some migrating geese, and the geese gunk up the props, and the plane engine stops working, and they crash into this lake. As soon as the the plane crashes into the lake, everyone clicks into survival mode. Hopkins and Baldwin, they do everything they can to get what they can from the plane. They quickly make a fire, they make camp, and they try not to panic. They've got to think. They've got to keep their wits about them. They're trying to make sense. Where are we? Where did we land? Like, where did we crash? Right? Uh, where might we be in relation to where we took off? And reality is sinking in. They're lost in the woods. They've got to adapt. They've got to improvise. They've got to overcome. But then comes a bear. And it's not just like any bear. It's a huge Kodiak grizzly bear. And this bear gets a taste for human flesh because he eats a guy Hopkins and Baldwin are with, a guy named Stephen, <laughs> poor Stephen. And now the bear wants to eat them too. And this really is the second part of the movie. It's fending off the bear. And finally, part three, the movie ends with their rescue. Now, in many ways, the movie The Edge maps onto the book of Revelation surprisingly well. Right, the book begins with John Uh, stranded on an island called Patmos. He's not on this island on vacation. He's not drinking Mai Tais on the beach. He's been marooned here. He's he's in exile. In some ways, his plane has crashed here, and he's stepping out of the wreckage, and he's trying to make sense of his situation. He's asking lots of questions. Questions like, if God's all good and all powerful, what am I doing here? If God is all good and all powerful, what are we doing here? Like, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Why does it seem like evil is winning? Where is this kingdom of God that Jesus is said to have inaugurated? You know, these are not just first century questions, as I've tried to make clear to you. Like, these are 21st century questions as well. Questions that you and I have to you. Well, immediately, John has this encounter with Jesus. And for the first half of the book... Jesus gives him and he gives us the lay of the land. He tells us where we are situated in the grand scheme of things. That we are living between this D-Day and V-E day, between Jesus' first coming and his second. To use biblical imagery, we are living between the Exodus and the promised land. We're living in the wilderness, right? This time uh, after uh, Israel was set free from their, their bondage in Egypt, but they hadn't yet entered into the promised land. Metaphorically speaking, that's what we're living in now, between Jesus's, the exodus that he wanted the cross and between the new heavens and the new earth. And in this wilderness, Jesus speaks to our fears. He speaks to our chaos and why our world and lives feel so off kilter. He speaks to our stories, particularly the myth of human progress. And he speaks to our suffering. Just like Hopkins and Baldwin in The Edge, we are learning to adjust our perspective and our expectations. Reality is sinking in. This is where we are at. 
And this is who we are. And this is what we've got going forward. We're learning how to survive in the wild. We're learning how to survive in the wilderness. Right? But this brings us to part two. In the movie, Hopkins and Baldwin have figured out how to survive the cold, how to feed their hunger, how to push through their despair. But it's at this moment that they discover, OMG, right? you've got to be kidding me, there's a bear in there, right? And not just any bear, a huge fat grizzly one that wants to eat them. And this is where we are now at in the book of Revelation. Jesus has given us what we need to know for our basic survival. But F, there's a bear in there. <laughs> where? In there. <laughs> for the next four weeks, we're going to focus on these metaphorical beasts, right? These bears that are in the wild and that threaten to destroy us. But we're not just going to focus on them. We're also going to focus on how to overcome right, their attacks. The last four weeks of the semester, just so you have a sense of where we're going, we'll focus on the rescue, sort of judgment day and the new heavens and the new earth. But this really only makes up about three to four chapters in the entire book. Revelation's 22 chapters long, which is to say the vast majority of this book, 80%, is focused on parts one and two, surviving the wild, fighting the bear. And this is why we've been saying that Revelation is a a down-to-earth manual for how to keep the faith, how to stay alive in this in-between time. It speaks to our present. It's incredibly poetic. And it's also very pastoral. Well, today, as we kick off part two in our series, we're turning our attention to the beasts and the wild that want to destroy us. In the words of Rage Against the Machine, kick-ass band, if you ask me, you got to know your enemy, right? You got to know your enemy. And tonight's outline is pretty simple to follow. Uh, in this passage, we are introduced to three characters, a dragon, a woman, and a child. And I want to make sure that we understand who's who in this passage, paying attention to the imagery and to the symbols, etc. Secondly, I want to look at how the dragon attacks us. And thirdly, I want to focus on how we are to overcome the dragon's attacks. So this is the outline. Who's who? One, how does he attack us? How does the dragon attack us? And three, how do we overcome? First, who's who? Uh, As I just mentioned, in this vision, we are introduced to a dragon, a woman, and a child. Verse five makes plain who the child is, okay? Uh, It's the Messiah, it's the Christ, it's Jesus. Jesus is the child in the story. In many ways, what we have here in Revelation 12 is God's perspective on the Christmas story. It's sort of what the Christmas pageant might look like in heaven. It's more Game of Thrones and less Silent Night. And I think this is actually a really important observation. See, for many of us, Christmas uh, elicits a meh. I mean, it's exciting to get, or, you know, we can get excited and hyped on presents and stuff like that, but... The way that the Christmas story is so often told, it can just seem so dull, so boring. Donkeys, wise men, a manger, whatever. It doesn't excite us, but in truth, the Christmas story is really exciting. It's as exciting as a fireman jumping into a burning building. It's as exciting as a Navy SEAL jumping out of a plane from 30,000 feet, 
and to land in enemy-occupied territory. It's that exciting. It's exciting and it excites real evil. It excites evil because evil knows who this kid is, right? Who is dropping into the scene. If Jesus is the child, that would make the woman Mary. But it's not just Mary. It's Mary plus all of her descendants stretching back to Eve. It's, the woman is this family tree that brings forth the Messiah. And it's not just the family tree that has birthed uh, the Messiah, but it's also the family tree that follows after him. Let's just say it's us. It's the church, brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters uh, who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Um, this is who the dragon is at war with. It's not just the Christ, but also with the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New. He's at war with Jesus, but he's also at war with you and with me, with us. And this then brings us to the identity of the dragon, a.k.a. the serpent of old in verse 9. It's the serpent that we encounter in Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis 3, it's like page 1, page 2, page 3. We're not far in. A dragon, a serpent appears. He invades God's garden. And he slides right in and he slides right up to Adam and Eve. And he whispers lies and insinuations into their ear. Did God really say you can't eat from this fruit? I mean, did he really say that? I mean, what a control freak. He really must hate you. Like, God doesn't love you. He's withholding good things from you. You know what? You'd be really happy if you took life and uh, your, your life into your own hands, took uh, matters into your own hands. Then you'd be free. Then you would be happy. Right? Then you'd be fully human. Well, this snake's venom enters into the bloodstream and it corrupts the heart and the rest is history. But this history isn't just our story, it's also God's story. It's his story. He's an actor on the stage too. And when the devil lies to us and we make a mess of things, God pursues us and he clothes us and he declares war. But not against us, right? He declares war against the dragon, against the snake. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity. It's, I'm declaring war. And it's going to be between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Someday a kid is going to come from this family tree of Eve who's going to crush your head, snake, but he's going to get wounded in the process. And the rest of the Bible is unpacking this promise. Who is this kid? Who is this kid to come? Who's going to be the snake crusher but get wounded in the process? You know, as an aside, I think it's really interesting how much the biblical story is reflected in the Harry Potter series. Have you ever noticed this? Right, We see the devil, the snake, and Voldemort from the house of Slytherin with the appearance of a snake. And this 
enemy is doing everything in his power to prevent the prophecy from coming true. Right? Seeking to destroy the promised one, the child who spells his doom. The curse of the snake rebounding on itself, and in the end, sacrificial love conquering all. Yeah. Harry Potter is a pretty cool story. I mean, it's, it really is, in some ways, reflected in our own story, our, this biblical story. As Revelation 12 shows, this war between good and evil is still going on. Now, Jesus has certainly dealt a blow to the devil, a, a, a serious blow. Six times we read in this passage that the dragon has been thrown down. He's been bounced out of heaven. He's been trounced on the, on the battlefield. But if this is the case, why are things so bad? I mean, that's a fair question. If he's been so badly beaten, why, is, why are things still so bad? Well, animals are the most dangerous when they're cornered. And the devil is cornered. He knows that he's lost. He knows that his time is short. Right? Verse, what is that? Verse 12. But he's not going to go down peacefully. He wants to take as many down with him as he can. How long is this going to go on for? Well, we're told in verses 14 and 6 that it's going to go on for a time and times and half a time, or 1,260 days. 1,260 days is 42 months, and this is a symbolic number. It echoes the wilderness wanderings of Israel. See, being after uh, being freed from Egypt, Israel spent 42 years in the wilderness, and they set up 42 camps in uh, in the uh, 42 camps in that wilderness locations before they entered into the Promised Land. So, what's being communicated here is that so long as we are in this wilderness, so long as we are in this in-between time between Jesus's death on a cross which set us free from our sins and are entering into the promised land, which is to say the new heavens, the new earth, we're going to be at war with this adversary. This is the overall gist of this passage. And now that we kind of see it sort of in an overview, I'd like to click that magnifying glass a few times and zoom in on some details. First, how does the devil attack us? And then how do we overcome? Actually, that's kind of points two and three, right? But let's zoom in a little bit. Let's see how he attacks us, and then let's see how we overcome. From this passage, we see three things. The the devil attacks us by accusing us, by deceiving us, and by threatening us. The first way the devil attacks us is by accusing us which is to say by bringing charges against us. The name Satan literally means accuser. That's what Satan means, accuser. And in verse 10, we see him described as the accuser of our brothers. Now, when we do wrong, it's right for us to feel guilt. I mean, that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. That feeling of like, oh, I did something wrong. And it's meant to move us to say sorry. It's meant to make us change our behavior. It's meant to move us to seek healing or to pursue peace and reconciliation. 
That feeling is called guilt. And guilt is not the same thing as shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. But shame says, you are a mistake. And that's a key difference. I don't know if you've heard of the name Brene Brown, but she's sort of like our shame expert, right? Um, Her book, Daring Greatly, is a favorite of mine. I, I think it's really, really good. She says in that book, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of belonging. See, guilt's influence is positive. It's helpful. It motivates meaningful change, right? She writes, shame's influence is destructive. It corrodes the very part of us that believes we can change and do better. And this is what the devil does with our sin. He accuses us. Not to simply make us feel guilty, but to make us feel shame. He uses our sin not to move us toward Jesus, but away from him. He fills us with shame. The voice that makes us want to cover up and hide ourselves that voice that says we will never be good enough and never never worthy uh, of love from God or from anyone else for that matter. That voice that makes us blame other people rather than take responsibility and own up to our own actions. The voice that makes us withdraw and isolate, maybe hiding behind drugs or maybe hiding behind Netflix or hiding behind our busyness. It's the same voice that would drive us to perfectionism. If I get perfect grades, then nobody will see the messed up parts of my life. If I have a perfect work record, you know, then nobody would really have to see those maybe unfavorable or unsavory parts of my life. You get the picture. This is the first way that the devil attacks us. He accuses us. But that's not all. Uh, He also deceives. You see this in verse 9. The second way the devil attacks us is by deceiving us. And the telling of half-truths and lies. Uh, In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says, When the devil lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. See, the devil tells us lies like you can never be loved. But also lies like there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfectly fine. You do you. You don't need God. You don't need rescue. You don't need salvation. Right? You don't need Jesus. You do you. You're just fine the way you are. The devil lies to us when he says, everything is awesome. There's nothing wrong with the world. You feel good? Great. That's all that matters. And the devil lies to us when he says, everything is awful. There's nothing for you to hope in. There's nothing for you to hope for. But the devil's big lie, the deception that trumps all deception, is the lie that he told in the garden and the lie that lives on in every human heart. It's the lie that God doesn't love you and that he doesn't care about you. 
and that God withholds good things from you. It's the lie that you will live life to its fullest when you live apart from God and on your own terms. The third way that the devil attacks us is through death threats. The dragon is red, which is the color of blood, obviously. And out of his mouth flows chaos and suffering. Again, in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about the devil. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a murderer from the beginning. He loves to kill. And he loves to keep people under his, under his thumb through the fear of death. He says, like, if you are going uh, to obey Jesus, you're going to suffer. You're going to lose. You are going to die. And as one commentator has pointed out, because of the fear of death, we are tempted to back off of Jesus. We're tempted to compromise, to hide our true light. Right? You're with Jesus. No, I'm not. You go to RUF? No, I don't. You go to church? Nah. We're just, in so many ways, just tempted to back off of Jesus because we're afraid of persecution, but also just we're afraid of death. We're afraid of being hurt for Jesus' sake. And so we hold tight to our own lives and we hold tight to our security. This is the enemy that we meet in the woods. This is the enemy that we meet in the wilderness. And this is how he attacks us. By accusing us, by deceiving us, and through death threats. But that brings us to our final question. How do we overcome? How do we overcome? Well, this text shows us three ways, and all of them are found in verse 11. The three ways we overcome are all found in verse 11. First, we overcome, we conquer this enemy by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. There was a Scottish pastor what up, April? Come on. <laughs> Named Robert Murray McShane. Who said that for every time you see your sin, you've got to take ten looks. Or for every look at your sin, you've got to take ten looks at Jesus. For every look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. The devil loves for us to focus on our sin. To get our faces right up in it. right? So that that's all that we see. Look at this. Look at this. Right? When you see your sin, take a good long look at Jesus. And having taken a good long look at Jesus, do it nine more times. Because this Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he came and he died so that you can be set free so that you can be forgiven. Jesus died so that you can be set free from accusation. The Bible says there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear this loud and clear. No more condemnation. No more accusation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is that? 
Is it because you are all of a sudden perfect and amazing? No. It's because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins in full. Past, present, and future. All of it paid for. It is finished. It's done. Which means you are set free from sin's penalty, from accusation forever. Again, this is not because you are awesome and good. It's because God is awesome and good. It's not because you're innocent. It's because he was innocent. He was a lamb without, without blemish, so he could pay for your sins. Did God do this because you had a good week? No, you haven't, and you didn't, right? But he does this because he loves you. The devil says, you're a sinner. But you already knew that. And he's leaving out the best part. Jesus came for sinners. You're a sinner. Yeah, okay. Jesus came for sinners. He came to seek and save lost people. He came to make broken people whole again. So... Accuse all you want in some ways, devil, right? Because all, all that your accusations do is they drive me deeper and deeper into his loving arms. You know what I mean? We overcome the accusations of the devil by the blood of the lamb. Blood that washes away our guilt and shame so that we can be, so that we can be pure and blameless in God's sight. The second way that we overcome the devil's attacks, this time his deceit, right, is through the word of their testimony, which is to say through words of truth, right, particularly truths about Jesus. The devil says that we are unworthy of God's love, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus prove otherwise. The devil says that we are good on our own. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus prove otherwise. The devil says that God is not good and he can't be trusted and he doesn't love you. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proves otherwise. Right? Romans 5, chapter 8, God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also give us graciously all things? I want you to hear, that, that's from the book of Romans. It's a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a church. I want you to hear how he takes this word of testimony, how he takes this truth, and he preaches it to his own heart, and he preaches it to ours. This is from the eighth chapter. Listen, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Hear that, like, Who's going to bring any accusation? He says, it's God who justifies. Who's there to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God right this very minute praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. 
And it reaches this crescendo, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even the devil himself, right, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we overcome the devil's attacks by the blood of Jesus and through the testimony about Jesus. Testimony really is language that comes from the courtroom, through evidence, right, through the proofs of Jesus. But ultimately, we overcome when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, loving him more than we even love our own lives, right? Trusting that he's not just a lamb who dies for us, but a good shepherd who knows, loves, cares for, and guides all of his sheep. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the hired hand, who is not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, when he sees the wolf coming, he runs away. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care about the sheep. But not me. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. The devil gives you death threats, right? This is an aside devil gives you death threats, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, because I and the Father are one. Y'all, when we know that we are in Jesus' hands, that he's got his good grip on us. We don't have to hold too tightly to our own possessions, do we? We don't have to hold too tightly even to our own lives. When we know that we are in Jesus' hands, we are set free to live courageously. And we don't have to hide our light. And we don't have to be shy about our shepherd. And we don't have to fear the devil's death threats. Because Jesus is not just our lamb, he's our good shepherd. He gives us eternal life. And nobody, not even the devil, can snatch us out of his hands. You all may have heard this before, it's true. There's perfect, there, there is a perfect love that casts out all fear. And it is the love of Jesus. He is the one who's going to guide you through this wilderness. He is the one who's going to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you can fear no evil. And he is the one who is taking you home. Let's pray.